The Scream Kings are in no way responsible for any encounters with the paranormal, extraterrestrial abductions, eldritch insanity, hauntings, curses, hexes, demonic possessions, cryptozoological sightings, or any loss of sleep that results from listening to this podcast. podcast i'm nathaniel darkish and this is max george fear is a tool when that podcast hits the sky it's not just a call it's a warning (laughs) nathaniel your batman voice is so good yes (laughs) it might be because you're a little sick but yeah yeah. honestly that's amazing cold that tipped it over the edge but you know what i'll take it Whenever I get sick, my mom tells me that it's just my sexy voice coming out, that all my inhibitions are down and low, so my sexy voice can fully manifest. It's kind of weird that your mom is talking about you having a sexy voice. I mean, you know my mother. It's true. This doesn't surprise (laughs) me at all. (laughs) Hello, everyone. We've been on a little hiatus. Unfortunately, this winter has been kind of brutal for us, Nathaniel. We've both not had COVID, thank God. But I think in the pandemic, we've all kind of forgotten about all the other illnesses that exist. Uh, just random colds, other viruses that can get you sick. And it's just been a ping pong maelstrom of illness. Yep. Yeah, no, definitely in this last week, I have had lots of cold symptoms. I had one day that I stayed home from work because I was puking my guts out. You know, it was just how it goes these days, yeah. I guess. Yeah, I even took a day off this week as well to just kind of rest and sleep some of the gunk off. But now that we are at least kind of, you know, sounding okay, uh, we figured we we could definitely justify getting back on the, the microphones and talking a little bit about Batman. Yeah, and I'm excited, I gotta say, I got a new microphone, so if you can hear my dulcet voice even better, that's why. Quite excited about it. Yes. But yeah, we're going to kind of deviate from the norm and talk about a superhero and how kind of this newest Batman movie incorporates some horror elements that uh, we were both pretty surprised about. So before we dive into the Batman, which obviously is going to be kind of the the main focus of a lot of our discussion, uh, I did want to talk a little bit about kind of why we feel that, you know, yeah, we can talk about batman specifically you know why you know the things that made us kind of you know look at uh batman as as a thing that we could talk about on a horror podcast so the first thing i want to share is that the original batman film well okay it's not the original film i know this i know way too much about batman as you will all very quickly (laughs) learn it is it takes up probably i don't know a third of my memory space in my brain, like, Batman is is a very big deal to me. So, when I say the original Batman, I mean of, of the modern era. I'm not talking about the 60s. I'm not talking about the short films from the 30s. Yes, I know about everything Batman, and I've seen it all. No, I'm talking about the uh, Tim Burton's Batman from 1989. That movie scared the crap out of me as a kid. 
<laughs> which okay, obviously I was a sheltered kid. We've talked talked about this at length sure. uh, in multiple episodes. But there's one scene in particular that just kind of messed me up in that movie. Uh, so specifically, there's a scene where Jack Nicholson's Joker uh, is you know meeting with a bunch of other criminals, uh, like in a big boardroom, and one of the first things that he does is he shakes someone's hand, but he has a hand buzzer, and when he shakes his hand, it fries him to death. And, you know, that's what he does to kind of, you know, intimidate the rest of them to get them to, to listen to him. And I just remember that scene and, like, how he looked after that dude was fried, because, you know, like, it, like, melts, like, a lot of the skin off of his face, all of that kind of stuff. Oh, terror. I was like, I'm here for the Batman, but I can't handle this, and I, like, ran from the room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I've ever seen this, actually. To clarify as well, I think it's very important as we go into this, Nathaniel, you and I have been in many a heated argument about Batman. Yes. Uh, because me, you know, I have always been more of a Marvel fan, and I, I think that has kind of bled over into my distaste of the DC superheroes. Um, as I have matured, I have come to appreciate a lot of aspects of the DC Comics and kind of their universe. And, you know, to be frank, my mother growing up loved Clark Kent and Superman. Uh, you know, I remember staying sick or staying home because I was sick and watching Superman with my mom. I grew up with Clark Kent. However, really my heart lies with the marvel universe i think a lot of times the storytelling is a lot more compelling and i identify quite a bit more with the marvel superheroes uh i am a spider-man fan through and through um, Same. if you ask me who my favorite like comic book personage is it's actually venom uh i really I really gravitate towards the storytelling that you find in the Marvel Universe more so than the DC. And I've given this a lot of thought because we have very different opinions about this new Batman movie. And I, I have to come into this conversation understanding that I have a bias. I have never liked Batman. I've never understood why people like Batman. I don't really consider him to be a superhero on the same par as, say, Spider-Man or, you know, Thor or even Iron Man. But I understand that I have that bias, and that's okay. Uh, I can appreciate what Batman does and the universe that he is in. But coming into this conversation, I, I am a little bit jaded. And I think it's important to recognize that. And then on the flip side, of course, my bias swings the extreme far opposite way. Where, you know, my love of, of Batman is absolute. To clarify, it doesn't mean that I'm just going to eat whatever, you know, garbage is thrown in front of me. No, like, let's just say, to me, the Batman was a nice uh, resurgence of, like, me being able to go, you know, look at some Batman media and go, oh, this is good again, because... With the exception of the Joker movie, which, you know, is Batman adjacent, I have not liked a lot of the more recent attempts to portray Batman in his universe. You know, whether that's talking about Batfleck, 
which you shouldn't get me started because I will froth at the mouth with my I, absolute loathing. I'm sorry, I have never heard the term bat flick before, and it's amazing. Oh man, you, you are clearly not in the Batman community. Absolutely not. And but then, um, you know, or or even just you know, extending it to something like say. Uh, the TV series Gotham, which again, like, had a lot of good ideas, but really, uh, I struggled with the execution. You know, I just that Dark Knight trilogy really set a really high bar for me, and so, um, so to me, like, the Batman is like a, a return to to the the things I love with a whole new spin on it. Um, but yeah, no, I I have read hundreds if not thousands of batman comics i have played many video games i've watched uh lots of the shows you know i i have batman the animated series on blu-ray i have (laughs) most batman films on blu-ray unless they're the bad ones with the bat films yeah and and again i think for me that is the opposite i adore spider-man I have consumed every cartoon Spider-Man moment I think that exists. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's actually really good for us to come into a movie that isn't necessarily horror-specific. There are a lot of horror elements to this movie. Uh, I would argue that it's much more kind of an action detective movie than anything related to horror. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think this dichotomy that we've established here is going to help us kind of understand the movie on a more pragmatic level, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I I actually really look forward to this discussion. Where we get, you know, kind of the fan service and the appreciation of who the hero of Batman is, but then also kind of that stripped back, more of a movie critic kind of a point of view without those rose-colored glasses on. Because, you know, I can, I can scream about the new Spider-Man movie, but if I talk to someone who hates Spider-Man, I'm sure I'd get the same kind of feedback. Though, you won't get that from me, because I also love me some Spider-Man. I know, I know, you do. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's just, like, it's, it's funny, because, like, my, my love is split between, like, especially those two figures, Batman and Spider-Man. Like, those were the ones I was obsessed with. Well, and the Ninja Turtles, I guess. Uh, see, and I, I loathe the Ninja Turtles. You know, I was a Power Ranger fan all, all through, even to today. But that's a whole other conversation. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Just look at uh, Max's Twitter feed if you want to f- see pictures of him cosplaying as a Power Ranger. Pretty damn good, if I say so myself. It was respect. All right, but so oh, let's... But, oh, but, but before we dive into to the Batman, I also just wanted to mention that you know part of the reason that I wanted to talk about. Batman on the podcast is because, you know, to me, I've seen that Batman often does dip into the well of horror um, with a lot of the storytelling and a lot of, like, the, the some of my very favorite stories that have been told um, about the character. And so I also thought I could bring uh, some, some good uh, expertise to that discussion as well. But yeah. I just want to agree with you, though, as well. You know, as I have kind of watched you and your fanaticism of the Batman universe, I have come to understand that a lot of the villains that are portrayed in the Batman series are kind of rooted in these elements of horror. Mm-hmm. You can't look at things like Scarecrow or Joker or even Two-Face and not understand that their kind of origin and their purpose or metaphor, not to get too esoteric, but they are kind of this embodiment of horror tropes. Which is important. Yes, for sure. 
All right, let's dive in to Matt Reeves, the Batman. I've been trying to reach you. Find the gun! This is a powder keg, and Rither's to match. I can take care of myself. If this continues, it won't be long before you've nothing left. I don't care what happens to me. It's only going to get worse for you. Hear everything they say, ain't you? Maybe we're not so different. Who are you under there? I'm vengeance. So honestly, when I saw the trailer for the show, I was pretty excited about it. It, it seems to have kind of this different edge to Batman. You know, I, I think our generation has the pinnacle of the Dark Knight. And while that movie is near perfect, I don't think it's absolute in its execution. I agree. But everything up to this point has just fallen flat. As you've mentioned, we had Batfleck. <laughs> Did I use that term correctly? Yes. <laughs> And so it was kind of exciting to see a new interpretation of the Batman. Kind of this gritty, noir, kind of edgy almost feel to it. And the trailer really portrayed the Riddler as kind of this new insidious interpretation. It wasn't Jim Carrey sporting a, you know, emerald green suit. It was this very kind of dark and twisted character. And so for me, I was titillated uh to some degree to see the movie more so than i would you know say justice league or batman versus superman which i mean yeah as as, as you should be because those movies are trash um, agreed <laughs> yeah I, I i definitely agree you know when i first saw the the trailer i mean firstly i heard the casting news i was leery about the the choice for you know who would take on the cowl um but I was a little bit more open to it, especially after seeing Tenet. Um, you know, I just hadn't seen Pattinson in very many films uh, since, you know, the earlier points in his career, you know, with his Harry Potter Twilight days. And I wasn't very impressed then, of course. Uh, but I was, you know, hoping that, that maybe, yeah, he could bring something uh, more to the table. And, but, you know, I, 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 was, I was guarding my heart. Because, you know, I've been hurt too many times by things like Batflack. Um, and so, you know, finally, as, as especially, you know, the, the movie got close and, uh, you know, early reviews were coming in and, and you were know, especially highlighting um, a lot of these horror elements, I said, okay, well, I have to see this. And, yeah, so, I mean, my experience was just, like, utter delight. You know, especially, yeah, seeing uh, a really dark take on the Riddler, who's usually one of my favorite villains, but often is played as a joke rather than, you know, something uh, really substantial or, or intimidating. I was, I was excited about this. Yeah, and, and so the movie itself, again, we are a spoiler podcast, so if you haven't seen The Batman, please pause the show, go see it in theaters, support your local theaters, and then come back and listen. But I was really, I mean, putting my Batman bias aside, because I think the opening monologues were just really kind of silly and cheesy, 
Because yeah. he has he has the Batman voice and he's talking about how important the city is and blah blah blah. But kind of the the beginning of the Riddler story was really kind of spooky. Oh yeah. I was really excited to kind of see at the beginning, like, oh, this this is dark. This is very horror feeling. And you know, the the idea of this Riddler wearing this like army mask with his uh, you know glasses over it kind of deranged personality setting up all of these very terrible torturous mechanisms i was excited it, it really got me enthralled in the story because i felt like i was watching a horror movie in the beginning oh for sure yeah that opening sequence was straight up it was you know, great yeah cuz cuz it yeah the the first thing is just the Batman, and then it's Ave Maria as he is, you know, as we have the Riddler looking, you know, yeah. binoculars just waiting to strike. Kind Whoa. of very, like, voyeur-esque watching this family. And I, I wasn't sure, is this, you know, Bruce Wayne when he's little and the Riddler's mm-hmm. watching his parents? Are they going to tie it into the origin story? Or is this something else? Um... And, like, the heavy breathing that the Riddler was doing the entire time also added this kind of dimension of just grossness. I, I think that's what I liked most about the movie is the Riddler, I mean, for the first two-thirds of the movie, was very just gross. It, yeah. it made me uncomfortable. Yeah, for sure. And, and, yeah, like, how that was shot, it was, yeah, from his perspective. You know, we can see through the binoculars as he's seeing through them you know we hear his breathing you know it's you know we are not just you know watching him watch them we are we are him it puts us in his in his mind and so yeah it feels very much like some uh kind of early or or maybe not early but you know kind of some some like notable horror films uh you know kind of spring to mind uh peeping tom um, you know, parts of Psycho, um, you know, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, a lot of these kinds of things where we really get inside that space as, as you know, we see a, a killer strike. I loved that. It, it you know, the, just how those shots were framed definitely felt like, you know, Norman Bates looking through the, or through the wall in Psycho or something like that. Yeah, and I think this is kind of an untapped horror element that I would like to see a lot more in movies is is the idea of being a voyeur, you know, kind of watching people in their most vulnerable state and descending to that degree of vulnerability as well yourself. It's, you know, to me, it's kind of that that sense of perversion you are invading someone's privacy, but also at the same time kind of debasing your character. Mm-hmm. And there's something very yucky about that. And, and I really, I, I think that kind of set the bar for the movie for me in regards of, okay, this feels very Norman Bates. This feels very like Chainsaw Massacre almost. Kind of that gritty, dirty feeling you get when you watch that film. Absolutely. And I was... I was really excited for that anticipation. And then, uh, coupled with Ave Maria, and, you know, you and I have talked ad nauseum about this idea of taking something 
holy and sacred and twisting it into something gross. And that's what they did with Ave Maria. It was a common thread throughout the film. Yeah. And it, it just, it worked in the beginning <laughs> and through the middle of the film for me. Uh, I was really excited to start it out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, whenever we get into that perspective, you know, it, it definitely feels, yeah, like you said, voyeuristic. And then, you know, what I, I liked next is that, you know, then we get a, a feel for how Batman was using fear, you know, using horror, using the, the tactics of, a, of, say, a horror movie in terms of how he was approaching dealing with the criminal element. You know, we always hear that in Batman stories. Oh, yeah, you know, everyone's scared of the bat. Oh, you know, he dresses like that to, to be intimidating and scary. But, like, a lot of times it doesn't feel true. And in this, I loved that sequence. Even though, yeah, the voiceover was a little um, on the nose and kind of cheesy. Um, I, I loved watching these criminals looking over their shoulders. And then we finally, and, and you know, we see basically, yeah, three different crimes going down. And it keeps alternating between them. And then finally, you know, the one that it ends up being after we see it cycle through like three times is or that that you know Batman is actually going to deal with is this gang where they all um have kind of like skeletal or maybe even joker like makeup on which i mean spoiler we find out later on that joker has already tangled with batman previously he's in the arkham asylum so that you know could be you know inspired by joker or whatever but you know this this gang uh, you know, mugging and, and, you know, menacing this guy, uh, just as he gets off the train and then, you know, Batman shows up and yeah, I like that the way that he approaches is all about scaring them. It's not about like being super clean and skilled at fighting. It's messy. And, and in fact, like he, he like lets them get some hits in because then if he continues to come at them, it's that much more intimidating, right? And so that's what I liked about um, a lot of how the the like combat and stuff like that worked is that it wasn't designed to say take a guy out really quickly. It was designed to scare everyone, and that was much more evident in in how messy the fighting was and how it was quick and brutal and effective at times. But it was meant to be kind of flashy and showy uh, in a way that was supposed to scare everyone else off. I liked that idea, making the fear part of actually how he attacks them. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point about kind of utilizing the horror aspects of Batman into kind of the beginning of the movie. I've never really thought of that. However... I, I will kind of play devil's advocate that I think the narration of what was going on at the time really undercut the horror. Uh, had it just been this kind of atmospheric kind of letting the fear breathe almost, mm. I think it would have been executed a lot more. I, I, I saw those moments and I understand where you're coming from, but then Patterson would talk and I'd just be like, oh, come on, Batman, don't take yourself so seriously. Yeah, but you make you make a really good point because I don't think any of the other Batman movies have really done that where the the criminals of Gotham 
this is a really interesting point that I think someone needs to capitalize on a little bit more. They are afraid of Batman because he's not your goody two shoe Boy Scout superhero. He kind of goes against the grain, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so to play on that a little bit, kind of make Batman more of an anti-hero kind of venom trope, you know, to use my Marvel background. Yeah, that would make Batman much more compelling to me. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think a lot of the best Batman stories do that, where he's not just, you know, this this, you know, gleaming, pristine, you know, knight that that everyone just goes, oh, he is our savior. No, he was much, you know, more the dirty, grungy. And, and that is what I like to see, that Batman is the person that is there to scare the darkest parts of the city into stopping as opposed to you know being some sort of like pristine model or just you know the guy who gets things done no like that's not his tactic it's to scare out the rats uh so keep going nathaniel uh what else did you like about this movie in regards to kind of the horror thematics of it all okay so the next thing is I think just, you know, okay, let's just go back to the Riddler since we since we, we were talking about him. The way that he approached his crimes, the way that he killed people especially, um, has, I think very justly, been uh, compared to both the film Seven and uh, the Saw series. I would say less, it, it, it's Saw light, I guess. It's definitely much more, I think, Seven in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, I really, I think the best horror moment of the entire film happened in the funeral for the mayor. Yeah. Where uh, Coulson had this kind of collar bomb on him and the Riddler was talking to Batman and kind of streaming it live. That, that moment in that scene, I was 100% invested in what was going on. I was very scared. I felt very tense. And that is that was the best scene in the entire film, in my opinion, because it was the Riddler at his best. He was instilling fear with such high stakes mm -hmm. that you cared about everything that was going on. Yeah. And and what I liked about how all of that worked was. One, we get to see, you know, these these, you know, interesting, disturbing traps that he that he does, you know. So, of course, you you mentioned the collar bomb. He had this like weird rat maze uh, that he put on someone's head. He just, you know, the, the ways that he tapes people up and writes all over their bodies and on the tape and all of that is really gross and disturbing. And then, of course, it has these ciphers, which either feels like seven or, of course, like several real life serial killers. Like the Zodiac Killer. Yeah, exactly. You know, there's lots of little nods to that or to Son of Sam or, you know, all of these different uh, real-life serial killers. But what I loved is that the kind of particular way that the Riddler's mind worked is that, you know, puzzles were the way that he dealt with the world. That's, you know, how he understood the world. That's It was his, his safe haven. And then he use that to hurt the world for hurting him and also you know to expose corruption and things like that which i thought was interesting because then he was able to look at batman who clearly is good at solving puzzles you know and and 
by the way, I loved that they leaned into the detective work in this, right? It wasn't just Batman goes and punches people until the problem is solved, which is what we usually get. You know, even in some of my favorite Batman stories and, and Batman films, this was the detective. And I mean, yeah, the origins of Batman, detective comics. You know, that's what the Batman comics were for, you know, years and years and years was just detective comics before they ever put Batman, you know, in the title. And so seeing that detective side played up was really interesting, one. And two, it was really interesting to see how we have our villain, the Riddler, think of Batman not as an opponent, but as someone who is like a collaborator. And I loved that idea. And I loved how all of that played out. You know, that, that when they finally have their, like, confrontation behind, or, you know, with, with the uh, security glass between them once, once they finally caught him, he's just like, we did it. We did it. Congratulations. We did it. You know, like, it was him trying to share in this moment with Batman. And I love that idea because it was so messed up. Um, and so, yeah, like seeing how his psyche worked and seeing the ways that they tied it into these like real life monsters really worked for me. I really liked this approach to, um, the Riddler and, and that, you know, again, yeah, the way he looks also is reminiscent of, of several serial killers and also of another Batman villain, by the way, uh, named Hush, um, has a very similar look to kind of what they, they had for, Riddler in this. But all of those things really really worked for me. So I really liked that element. Um, you know, more so than uh the other elements of the plot, uh in terms of like some of the other villains and all of the you know, kind of weaponizing all of the weird incels on the internet kind of thing at the very end and all of that. Uh, you know, so that that's really interesting to me because I think for me, coming in as an outsider again, and not, I mean, not an outsider. I know a fair amount of Batman because I'm your friend. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, your best friend. I, I, I really appreciated what the Riddler was doing for about the first third of the movie. Mm -hmm. I was engaged with the story arc. I really thought it was clever. I loved the ciphers and the riddles that were going on. But then I felt like the focus shifted from the Riddler onto kind of the whodunit. And the Riddler kind of fell from this main antagonist to kind of a secondary antagonist. And that cheapened his kind of sadism to me. I wanted him to be a little bit more unhinged and a little bit more kind of wild and chaotic. I felt like the movie deviated substantially to kind of figuring out who the rat was who this rat with wings was mm -hmm. and then the zoe kravitz catwoman story of you know the father and the missing friend who eventually eventually died and i just felt like the movie kind of forgot about the riddler for a good third of the movie again and then all of a sudden he came back right as the big reveal of who the rat was yes and i mean like some of that was foreshadowed in, in interesting ways, but I do agree. Like, the Riddler stuff was more what was really pulling me in than the other things. But, like, 
part of this is probably, yeah, again, my bias, because I have read so many comics about, you know, Catwoman and about, um, you know, Penguin and about... Uh, oh, and I the... loved... I loved Penguin. I thought Penguin was one of my, like, one of the highlights of the film. Yeah, and, and, and even, like, uh, you know, Moroni and Falcone and, you know, all of these different uh, crime families and all that kind of stuff. I've, I've read enough about them that I, I was engaged with those elements, but I will agree that, like, they were, it, it was definitely lesser than the intensity that Riddler was bringing. I liked that basically that was basic, basically him leveraging Batman to get what he wanted to get his next victim. I love that idea. Yeah. Which was really smart, but I, I agree that, like, kind of taking him almost completely out of the limelight for a while was, I think, a, a little bit of a misstep. Sure, yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I'm a fan of Batman enough to understand kind of the nuances of Catwoman and Batman, kind of this subplot of romance that always has existed between them. Yes. And even Penguin, who's such an iconic Batman villain, those moments were so fun. Like the chasing with the Batmobile and the Penguin and kind of his like excitement that he finally beat the Bat. And then it turned, like, that was cool. That was, like, cinematic just awesomeness. Mm -hmm. But if we approach the movie from a horror viewpoint, a lot of the tension and the fear that the Riddler instilled in the very beginning dissipated as the story kind of went a different path. You're right. And it was a letdown. You know, I was enjoying this awesome portrayal of Penguin by Colin Farrell, but... I wasn't invested in the story as much anymore. And I, I think the Riddler kind of coming into the Bruce Wayne story, and was it Thomas Wayne? Is that his father? Yes. I, I think that felt a little cheap too. I wanted them to focus more on kind of the police force and, you know, kind of the subplot of the BLM movement that we're going through and the dirty cop. And I, I, I don't know. I just, I went with you know, my partner, my boyfriend, Mark, and he brought up the good fact that there were several points to him, and he is a diehard Marvel fan through and through. So, you know, take this with a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. But he felt like the movie didn't know what it was trying to do at various points in the film. Like, it was trying to be a detective movie. It was trying to accomplish these horror moments. It was trying to be a romantic film at some degree. And it just, he hated it. Um, and the caveat to all of this, too, uh, is, again, I have this bias to Batman, so I, I'm coming in with a chip on my shoulder, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which is, is understandable, but as a film critic, I felt the plot started to kind of unravel as the movie progressed. Uh, the other thing I want to say is I really loved the detective aspects of the film. Yeah. I, I thought it was fun, like, figuring out what Riddle is trying to do and who is the villain here, who is kind of the rat with wings. But I feel like this movie in particular, The Batman, you could have plucked out Batman and put in James Bond or put in Jason Bourne or, hell, even Inspector Gadget. You know, any other detective out there, Sherlock Holmes, and they would have done the same thing. 
any of these like super empowered detectives. I don't know. I felt like Batman was a secondary protagonist. I cared more about Gordon and his struggle with everything that was going on more so than Batman. Interesting. I, I definitely see where you're coming from. I mean, that wasn't my experience, but I, I definitely you know. see where you're coming from on that. And, and I do agree. Like, I, I think especially in terms of like pacing, the, the, that first third of the movie was tight. And the second third was a, a little bloated at times. Um, you know, the, even just like the, the scenes, like with the Batmobile scene, which I largely loved, it was too long. Um, agreed agreed and and then that last third was a little bit messy um and didn't know like like it just it had so many ideas it wanted to get across that it didn't do it in a way where like one scene served multiple purposes um which is you know kind of goes to this idea of of writing where you know you want any scene to do more than one thing right you want of course <clears throat> you know in order to be a, an effective efficient storyteller you want to be able to share an idea um and yeah have even just like one line of dialogue both progress the plot show character um you know add complications to relationships you know you want it to be doing multiple things and a lot of the the things about this film is i i would say most scenes especially in that last third struggled uh, with accomplishing more than one goal at a time uh, you know, several of those scenes really could have been combined in some way or another, instead of us having to see this scene that resolves this idea, or this scene that furthers this idea. Um, I don't know, it, it it did feel weaker, especially in that last third, uh, and and bloated in that middle third. Because, yeah, like, it, it it's a three-hour movie. It I, I think it would have been way tighter if it was a two-and-a-half-hour movie. And I don't think they would have had to take much out, they could have just tightened up the scenes yeah yeah I, I think there were some moments where i just felt watching it like this is just to fill time you know the the moments with alfred you know again spoilers here but bruce wayne is attacked by the riddler because of his father's lies but alfred kind of intercedes and takes the hit but up to that point alfred was in the show three scenes i counted i had zero compassion for alfred and also, I had zero compassion for Bruce Wayne. Robert Pattinson was in the Batsuit far more than he was ever Bruce Wayne. Which is good, because he was way better in the Batsuit than he was oh, as Bruce Wayne. Yeah, a thousand percent. I could talk all day about how Robert Pattinson gave me the creep vibes rather than, like, charismatic, debutante, uh, you know, Bruce Wayne. Which, which, but... which, I mean, I think was part of how they wrote the character in this one. Sure. That, that you he know, was it... kind of like a weird reclusive guy. Which yeah, I think it was, a... was smart for this kind of story, but yeah, like I I agree. Like his performance was much stronger as in the bat as, suit. as Batman rather than Bruce. Yeah, yeah, I mean I understand kind of the detective noir kind of trope there, but you're also portraying this film as a comic book superhero movie, so you kind of have to play both sides mm -hmm. here. And also, I just have to complain about Zoe Kravitz. And her like four inch fingernails, like the stunts she was pulling and the stuff she was doing, those nails did not serve her at all. That just felt unbelievable to me. And overall, she was a fun Catwoman. She felt very grounded mm -hmm. and very realistic until, you know, she fell in love with the bat. 
that just that just didn't make sense to me other than understanding that Catwoman and Batman have always kind of had this will they won't they yeah I mean they almost got married in the comics a couple of years ago oh that I did not know um you have a, a show note here you talk about Batmobile as Christine and I'm very intrigued by this because I was a little underwhelmed by the Batmobile okay. I loved the chasing with Penguin but the Batmobile I was just like eh he just likes cars Okay, so, um, I can't, like, take credit for this idea. Apparently, you know, I, I, I came across uh, an interview with Matt Reeves, the director, writer of this film, and he talked about that when he designed the Batmobile and was thinking about, you know, especially, yeah, incorporating a lot of these horror tropes and stuff like that, because he does have a horror background. I mean, the dude made uh, the original Cloverfield. He wanted to make the Batmobile have a feel like Stephen King's Christine. So that that first time that we finally see the Batmobile is, you know, the scene that ultimately results in, in chasing the penguin. But when we first see it, it is, you know, kind of on the other end of this like parking lot. And we just see it, you know, revving its engine and acting, you know, like it's just this angry car that is that is just intimidating before it approaches and yeah like the way that the car moved the way that they you know had this you know kind of like flames in the front kind of thing um just the fact that it was kind of more of a muscle car all of those things were were specifically inspired by Stephen King's Christine you know to what he wanted to do is he wanted it to be a mean, intimidating, scary car that felt like it had a personality that was just rage, rather than anything you know that we typically associate with cars. You know, he wanted to give it that sort of personality, and kind of looking at it through that lens, um, because I, I did see that article before I saw the film. You know, considering it that that whole scene with that. Yeah, the Batmobile was kind of scary. It was kind of like Christine in that it had that personality. And so it's one of those things where I don't think that it would be necessarily something that you notice unless you're looking for it. But I really liked that he used that inspiration of this mean, angry car to you know kind of further the way that he was playing off of this idea that, that Batman is instilling fear. That it's not just the, oh, hey, it's a really cool gadget, gadgety car. It was the angry car that's going to chase you down and can't be stopped and you know especially just that sequence where you know the batmobile you know goes over the flames and you know just bashes into the car and knocks him over and stuff and then batman comes out oh got chills hmm that is interesting to me i don't know if i got the same vibe but of course i wasn't kind of going into the movie with that understanding that was the intent yeah i would say like you know once the film is more accessible and stuff uh on streaming or whatever you know it might be worth just looking at that scene again at the very least uh and look at, at it you know in kind of the context of thinking of, of christine and see what you think because i really enjoyed that sequence even though it was too long because of that and going, ooh, yeah, he did make a Christine Batmobile. Okay, so one small piece of, I guess, news that I came across is that apparently 
they're doing a couple of spin-off things from the film in addition to, you know, the inevitable sequel. Uh, including uh, apparently they're going to be making a TV series about Arkham Asylum. And I'm very curious to see where this goes because it definitely, you know, sounds like it's going to have a lot more horror vibes than, you know, even this film does. Yeah, I also heard that they were thinking of doing kind of a spin-off about Penguin, which intrigues me as well because yes. again, I think Penguin was very fun in this film. Yes, it's so it's not my favorite way to to have Penguin portrayed, but if you're going to have kind of this type of Penguin, then I'm on board with with like the performance that Colin Farrell did. He he really nailed it. Yeah, I think Penguin is an interesting character, but you can't use kind of the fear that he instills movie by movie. I think this is what Disney does really well with the Marvel series, is in it brings in kind of these long, drawn-out plot moments that make you really recognize the intimidation that some of the villains do. You know, yes. say Thanos. It was a 15-year kind of build-up to Thanos, and we all were really invested in the outcome there. Yes. Um, and even, like, this new Doctor Strange, where there are several, you know, TV series that build up to what's going to happen in Doctor Strange, and I think that's effective, especially for fans like us. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on board with it. And I'm Agreed. on board with, you know, both the Penguin Show and the Arkham Asylum Show. I'm really curious to see what they do with both. Um, so let's talk about uh, DC villains, especially Batman villains, uh, and looking at mental illness. Yeah, like I mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, I think one of the aspects of DC that they do really, really well is taking very authentic villains. They, they aren't highly superpowered. They don't have, like, god powers, per se. Unless you're dealing and they, with Superman villains uh, sure but you know you could argue that those are aliens so therefore they're different yeah but you could say the same thing about like thor's villains so to speak or wonder woman's i mean she she literally yeah. fights gods for real you know Ares. so you know batman in particular i guess is that's the good caveat here uh has villains that are very grounded in reality you know look at two-face that's very kind of typical bipolar uh, Joker, even you could say he's a sociopath. Uh, even you know insanity, so to speak. Psychopath. Psychopath. Excuse me. Um, even Scarecrow, you know, embodies all the phobias. Scarecrow is probably my favorite DC villain of all time. He's really cool, at least in in certain portrayals. He's awesome. It, exactly. If you take kind of the joke factor out that DC sometimes does, the idea of what Scarecrow does really is intriguing to me. Mm -hmm. And so these tropes kind of exist through the DC Batman universe about taking mental illness and turning them into villains. And while I think that's powerful and relatable to some extent, would you... What do you feel, being a DC fan, mm -hmm. being a Batman fan, have we come to the point in society where maybe this isn't very DC? You know, taking someone's bipolar and turning it into a villain? I, I, and the argument there is, of course, like, this is the extreme. Joker is not just, like, a case of psychopathy that every people, 
deal with you know like it's the extreme but i i'm in, interested in what you're thinking so i'm of a few minds uh, of this and so the first thing is that like when we look at real life uh you know killers you know some of the, the serial killers or just you know notable kind of real life scary people a lot of them do have uh, different mental illnesses and and a lot of times those inform their worldview in a way that maybe makes them behave erratically maybe i wouldn't say push them specifically to the violence but certainly made them more susceptible to be pushed to things like violence and cruelty but on the flip side yes when we're looking at mental illness it's it's you know statistically much more likely for someone that's mentally ill to be a victim of violence rather than a perpetrator of it. Uh, an example that I'm going to give that I heard uh, from uh, someone who works for the Utah State Hospital, the, it's the, the mental institution for the, the state of Utah, he, he t- uh, at a panel that I went to, talked about that, you know, in, in his experience, yeah, most uh, of the patients that, that he works with are very yeah kind sweet people and he talked about that there was a one man who uh, had a very powerful delusion that his fingers uh were knives and he and he sincerely believed this and so he would always walk walk down the hall with his hands raised high in the air so he would avoid harming people so yeah generally speaking like i don't think that mental illness and you know, violence can be so perfectly tied together. So yeah, it's complicated. And and part of what further complicates it is that, you know, when we're looking at a lot of these villains, a lot of them were first created in the 1930s, 1940s. And so, you know, they were very ham-handed in the way that they approached a lot of this. I, I guess what I ultimately will say is that I don't necessarily want a bunch of new villains emerging that are just, you know, oh, it's, it's the, you know, the Batman villain that is this mental illness personified, or this one. Um, I don't want to see more of that. What I do want to see is maybe some more kind of counterpoints to, you know, have a, you know, for Two-Face, to, to have someone else who can, you know, show us Things like uh, DID or bipolar, and and maybe be an example of someone who has that and is not a you know monster. Yeah, and I think I'm excited to watch Marvel's new adaptation of Moon Knight because that is kind of the theme of Moon Knight. There's this kind of etherealness to him in regards to does he have superpowers? Or is it kind of this mental illness that kind of frees him of his inhibitions and allows him to be super in his own way? Yeah. And I'm really pumped and excited to see how they portray that because up to this point, Marvel has really hit it out of the park for the most part. Yeah, there's a few doubts. For sure. So it, it will be interesting to see how kind of the superhero vibe that is out there with shows and films pivots and and makes it an illness and not a weakness or 
a reason to be a villain. Yeah, yeah. That that that's I think kind of what it boils down to. And you know, I I think that as long as you know the portrayals of these villains that exist are more complicated than just pure well they are mentally ill ergo they are a villain which i think they have largely moved away from and instead are showing yeah i i think that that's what they're doing well is that the reasons that these villains are villainous isn't just mental illness but i would like to see some more counterpoints being presented just to help us kind of recognize hey someone is not evil because they have this illness you know and to give credit where credit is due i think the batman portrays this really well with the riddler yeah in he his motivations are not based around this mental illness that he has it's it's about what happened to him personally his trauma his personal trauma related to other things external factors that drove him to do what he did. Yeah, and and then the mental illness was then just how he thought about the world and 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 you know how he used puzzles in order to do the things that he was doing because that was how his brain worked. Yeah, exactly. You know, compare that to Norman Bates or Leatherface whose identity is wrapped in this mental trauma. You know, Leatherface is based off of Ed Gein who had he had you know, psychiatric help at the time and the stuff that he was going through was largely more accepted. Who knows what have happened? Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's just interesting. I, I think DC does a good job at propagating discussions like this about talking about mental illness to some regard. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that they're getting better and better about it too. You know, every once in a while I've encountered a, a particularly ham-handed example of, you know, uh, how one of these villains is being portrayed but usually as soon as a, a new writer comes on or something like that that gets fixed and and so you know i i think they're trending in in the positive all right so should we move into kind of rating the batman yes so as far as screams go i was really excited at the beginning you know we really haven't dived into why i dislike this film broadly but I, I just felt the horror elements was, were so developed and intriguing and spooky in the first third. And then they just kind of disappeared for me. So I gave it a 2.5. I can give it a 4 just because I think that the elements that were there were intense enough to, to justify, you know, a little bit higher than, than that for me. But, but yeah, like as a whole, it wasn't like a, a terrifying film. It used horror elements, but wasn't horror itself. Crowns-wise, uh, I freaking love this movie. I gave it a 9. <laughs> I will watch this one over and over and over again. Yeah, you know, and I gave it a 4. Again, I really loved the first third, and then the movie for me just fell apart. I I don't know. I, I stand by that The Dark Knight is kind of the pinnacle Batman movie. Yeah. And it is hard to pull back to what was established in Dark Knight. Again, Dark Knight is pretty perfect, but it's not absolute. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times Batman is not as exciting as, say, you know, Heath Ledger's portrayal of the Joker was. But as far as a film goes, I was dissatisfied. I 
looked at my watch several times. I felt like it was too long. I felt the plot was all over the place at moments. And I, I wanted more. If we're going to go for a noir detective film, I wanted it to lean into more of that than kind of these superhero plots that felt, you know, almost like fan service to some extent. Yeah. And, and I, I agree with you on all of those things, actually. But it's still a freaking <laughs> nine for me. I love this movie. It's it's funny, but yeah, all of your complaints, I'm like, yep, I'm on board with all of those things. But also, it's still a nine. I love this movie. <laughs> and again, I think that comes back to, you know, the, the Batman tinted glasses here of, this is a superhero that you admire and adore. And I fully support giving you a little bit of a pass because it's it's nostalgic for you. Mm-hmm. It goes back to the Batman that you love, and there's power in that. And you're willing to kind of overlook things for that. I, I would do the exact same thing, and I do with the Venom movie with Tom Hardy. One, Tom Hardy's a beefcake, but <laughs> also the portrayal of Venom as more of this conflicted hero. You know, the movie is not great, it's not really good. But I loved it because I finally got the venom that reminded me of my childhood. You know, I'm curious what 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 do you rate it in terms of like on a ten scale for for crowns? I guess the venom. Oh boy, I'd have to think about that. Probably like a five or six. Okay, like I I see that it's not a great movie, but Tom Hardy is very distracting for me. He is the number one on my celebrity sex list. And then you add Venom into that. Like you said, when we saw it together, I I think as we were leaving, you're like, man, that was uncomfortable for me. It felt like you were watching a porno. You know, it's true. true. (laughs) Um, I'm excited, though, to hear, you know, you're such a Batman fan, Nathaniel. Talk to me a little bit more about other stories that kind of have this horror horror adjacent feel to them. Yes. So. I'm going to start with one that is, I would say, probably the least horrific uh, of the ones I'm going to talk about, but I think it still has a lot of really good kind of spooky vibes that I, I, and and so I I bring this one up. Um, So the, it is a film, it is the first film that they did with um, Batman, the animated series. So it is an animated film. It's called uh, Batman Mask of the Phantasm. Um, and if, if we're counting, um, The Dark Knight is my number one Batman film of all time. Mask of the Phantasm is number two for me, and then The Batman is number three. So I like this movie more than The Batman. It's really freaking good. Um, That's interesting. I might have to look up this one if it's that good for you. I really love this movie. Um, Part of the appeal is that, you know, we, we do have uh, a lot of Joker in it, but, you know, he isn't the main villain. The main villain is a unique villain to this film, but it's the Phantasm. We have, you know, it's this very, like, spectral villain, and oh, it's just, it's such a good story. It's it's really well done, and, yeah, because the Phantasm is, is kind of very ghostly in, in the way that it um, behaves and, and, and how the crimes work and all that stuff, it it I think scratches a nice itch for for anyone who is a fan of um, horror 
and also maybe loves them some Batman. And, you know, definitely this is the Batman, the animated series, writers doing some of their very best work. And you can't beat Kevin Conroy voicing Batman or Mark Hamill as the Joker or things like that. Like, it's it's top tier. It is It is top shelf Batman for sure. The next thing I'm going to bring up is a, a story that got a, a few nods actually kind of during the Batman. I think the choice to set uh, the opening sequence at Halloween was specifically a nod to uh, a story called The Long Halloween, which is one of my all-time favorite Batman graphic novels. And I recently was adapted into a two-part uh, animated film, by the way, which was also quite good. Had a few little twists on the original, too, which was nice. But The Long Halloween is basically a story about the mob being haunted by this mysterious serial killer uh, who's just known as the Holiday Killer, or or Holiday. Uh, and this Holiday Killer is, yeah, taking out, like, major mob figures and always leaving behind... Or basically, you know, decorating the corpse with with whatever holiday themed stuff uh, is applicable, because you know he always strikes only on holidays uh, throughout the course of a year. So the first kill is on a Halloween, the last kill is on a Halloween. That's why it's a long Halloween. And so, um, yeah, so these these corpses are set up with with you know, say it's Valentine's, there's going to be like, like lots of hearts and stuff like that, and flowers and all that around the body, uh, and then also the the murder weapon, which is a gun that has a baby uh, bottle nipple uh, as a silencer on it. And so it's a really good, like, serial killer story. It has a lot of really spooky elements, kind of, you know, the way that it, you know, we have these, like, killings framed by the killer is really uh, unnerving. And that one is also just by uh, some of my favorite uh, Batman creators. So it's uh, Jeff Loeb and um, Tim Sale. Uh, Jeff Loeb, the writer, Tim Sale, the artist. And, like, just the way that they do Batman is really, really good. Uh, so I highly recommend that one. It's a really fun uh, story. Also, yeah, has has, you know, plenty of horror-adjacent uh, content there. And it also, like, really has, like, most of the rogues gallery appear at one point or another in the uh, over the course of the book. Uh, another one also by that uh, same creative duo is uh, one called Ghosts. It was basically like a pastiche of A Christmas Carol, but with Batman. And so, you know, he's visited by ghosts over a night, and, you know, it's kind of to make him evaluate his life. But it does have a, a kind of a nice creepy vibe to it. You know, I, I would say, you know, you could definitely argue that A Christmas uh, Carol is, is definitely a, a horror story in addition to being other things. And so, yeah, it definitely, you know, has that, that same kind of idea there. Um, then we have one of the, the most clearly horror Batman things that, that has ever come out is a graphic novel called Arkham Asylum, A Serious House on a Serious Earth. So Arkham Asylum, Serious House on a Serious Earth. Okay, so it was made by Grant Morrison, uh, who is uh, one of the big names in uh, DC, particularly like in the 90s. Uh, but then he had it illustrated by Dave McKean. Uh, so Dave McKean does a lot of art that is like this like weird mixed media. So he, he, it'll be like weird collages where you know we have this like very like detailed 
art, but then it'll sometimes just be like, you know, have like photographs like incorporated or things like that. It's very like unnerving to look at. Um, if you've ever seen any covers of a uh, Sandman graphic novel, uh, the you know Sandman by Neil Gaiman, that uh, is the the art that we're talking about. But it's a story basically where the inmates in Arkham have all gotten loose, and Batman goes in to deal with them. Or they're, they're not loose; they're they're I guess out of their cells, but they're still in Arkham Asylum. They've taken over, and he goes in. Um, to try to deal with the situation, and is actually driven mad over the course of the evening. And so, by the end of it, he starts to, like, think that he is fighting literal monsters. So, like, for example, uh, Killer Croc, he sees as this, like, towering nightmare monster, and he literally kills him with a spear. Like, so it starts out, you know, very, like, oh, hey, this is Batman coming to deal with this situation, and by the end, it's like he is straight up killing villains. Like it's it's this really dark, twisted, you know, kind of story that you know isn't set in any timeline or anything like that. But it's basically, hey, Batman belongs in Arkham too, which I really liked. It's gorgeous but terrifying and messed up. It's yeah, that's that's interesting. I think that kind of goes back to our interpretation of Batman as kind of this anti-hero. You know, he, he does good, but is he really a hero, and should maybe he be in jail like everyone else? Yeah, yeah, uh, and, and I, I think that, that interesting kind of dichotomy of, okay, there's clearly something wrong with him if he thinks that this is how he should spend his life, and, and you know, that's kind of like what makes him and Joker such interesting, like, you know, kind of antitheses for each other. Such an interesting idea is that, like, he... he Joker and Batman have more in common than maybe Batman is comfortable addressing. Yeah, they are definitely in love. Let's just call it what it is. <laughs> we could do this forever. Um, Lego Batman movie here, chiming in. Yep, yep. <laughs> um, there's also uh, Arkham Asylum Living Hell, which is like a little story about someone who tries to uh, avoid a prison sentence at Blackgate Prison by pleading insanity, uh, and does that successfully, and then has to now live in Arkham Asylum. And it, you know, as the title suggests, is a living hell because he clearly does not fit. I'm just going to kind of hit through some of these other ones real quick. Um, there it was a big event recently in the DC Universe called um, Metal, uh, or specifically Dark Knight's Metal. Basically a bunch of, like, alternate universe Batmen that are all evil and scary, kind of, like, come and attack their universe. Um, there, most notably, there is the Batman who laughs, who looks kind of like this weird, nightmarish love child uh, of Batman and Joker as seen through, like, a super hardcore death metal music video. So it's it's interesting. There's a lot of cool ideas in it, but it is just kind of bonkers. and. It, frankly, a little bit hard to follow. Um, there was a label that, that DC was trying to create for more adult stories that didn't ever really take off, but they, their first big story was a story called Batman Damned, where it's basically this kind of dark story about Batman um, having killed the Joker and, like, feeling damned. Um, that was dark 
And uh, famously, it's also a, a story where, at least in the original run of the art, you could totally see Bruce Wayne's dick at one part. All right, so I will be uh, Googling this later. Yes. Um, <laughs> the Another really good uh, example that is, I think, a top-shelf Batman story is one called The Black Mirror. Um, this was a story that was done uh, by Scott Snyder, who is one of the bigger writers uh, in, in the Batman universe, uh, especially more recently. The, the story is that um, Batman actually is Dick Grayson. Uh, during this story, uh, there's a whole thing where Batman got pulled through time, which is kind of ridiculous. But while that was going on, um, Dick Grayson took over as Batman. Um, Dick Grayson being Nightwing, the the first Robin, for anyone who doesn't know. But it's a story about, really, it's about the Gordons. It's about Gordon and uh, Barbara Gordon, who is Batgirl, dealing with um, the reemergence of jim gordon jr who is extremely mentally ill and it's it's like a a serial killer story that looks like it's the joker but it's actually jim gordon jr and it's very good highly recommend and then also side note i just googled the batman damned dick Mm -hmm. very very disappointing for anyone who's interested not as exciting as Nathaniel made it sound. I'm just saying it, it, it's the first time that you would see Batman's junk in history. So, you know, take it for what it is. It's it's like a shadow of his junk. But anyway, continue. I'm Sorry. just saying they, they, they got rid of that shadow in, in subsequent printings. That is my carnality coming out. Um, and then also I just want to mention the Arkham... Um, Asylum video game series, so Arkham Asylum, Arkham uh, City, Arkham Knight. Uh, definitely have some really strong horror elements, especially el- uh, sections that you play through uh, Scarecrow stuff. The first game really leans into a lot of the horror. The later one's a little bit less so, but it's uh, really good. Uh, I love those games a lot. It's really they're, they're, they're all really fun and also have some really good spooky moments. So there we go. There, there's just a handful of Batman stories with horror feels. Needless to say, I could go on, but I don't think y'all want to hear me talk about Batman for 17 hours. All right. Um, just to kind of wrap us up, I know this episode's a little bit longer. We anticipated that just because uh, this is Batman, and I, I feel like you can't talk about Batman without loving every minute of it, Nathaniel. Yes. Uh, but we do kind of want to give a shout-out to other horror-esque comic superhero moments out there. Because there are a lot, I think this is kind of an untapped genre that maybe we should dive into a little bit. Yes. Uh, but of course you have Venom, who I love. I love him so much. But you also have his counterpart, who is Carnage. Uh, and Cletus Cassidy is a serial killer. And when the symbiote kind of infects him, Carnage is terrifying. Oh, yeah. The movie did not do him justice at all. Don't get me started on that. But the OG comics and even the cartoon series from the 90s, Carnage is a monster, and he's great. Yeah, I remember the, uh, like, N64 PS1 uh, Spider-Man game had, um, like, Venom and Carnage as villains, and I remember that Carnage actually, like, merges with Dr. Octopus at the end, and they become Octonage. Yeah. And you don't fight him, he's the last boss. You run for your life from him and then the avengers yeah. show up and like help help you deal with that but 
the current comic series that are all about Venom and Spider-Man, they kind of have teamed up because the Carnage symbiote has bonded with Osborn and has created the Red Goblin. Uh, and just do a Google search of the Red Goblin. The, the artwork for this comic series is gorgeous and so spooky. Uh, oh, I, I mean, we need to do a whole series about Venom and Carnage. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm on board with that. Another one of my favorite Marvel superheroes that has a lot of horror elements in it is Doctor Strange. Uh, I, I was new to the Doctor Strange vibe. I, I have to admit that I first got kind of on the bandwagon when the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe movie came out. But I fell in love. If I had to impersonate a superhero, it is Doctor Strange. The sass, the occultism, the magic, it is me. It is me. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, and his main villain, uh, you have Dormammu, who's kind of this dark dimension, kind of demon-esque villain. But you also have Mephisto, who I'm still holding out that the Marvel Universe is going to incorporate somehow, is literally Satan. Uh, which, of course, is a horror in its approach. Yeah. Uh, of course, Black Knight was revealed to us in the Eternals. We're going to get a little bit more of that. And that's kind of Marvel's approach to the mental health aspect. You have this ebony blade that is supposed to represent the opposite of Excalibur, uh, but it's also inducing insanity and psychopathy in its wielder. So it'll be interesting to see how Kit Harrington handles that. Uh, there's, of course, Blade also in the Marvel Universe, uh, who will be in yes. the MCU soon. I'm Absolutely. very excited. Uh, and talk to us about the DC Wonder Boys of Hellboy and John Constantine. Well, Hellboy is actually not DC. He is his own thing. That is right. That is right. Shoot. I love me some Hellboy. I recently read through the first two major runs, so Hellboy and then Hellboy in Hell. Need to get my hands on some of the other things. But Hellboy is a delight. You know, it's a, a demon, and he is the son of a prince of hell, and... He works for the BRPD, fighting all sorts of horrible monsters. It's, a, it's great. Highly recommend the comics. I love the art style and the writing. And yeah, Hellboy's great. Didn't love the new movie, unfortunately, but the original two movies yeah. were great. And the agreed, new agreed. movie had a great casting choice for Hellboy, but other than that, was terrible. But yeah, no, so, so as far as the DC Universe goes... Our big two would probably be John Constantine and Swamp Thing. Incidentally, they both used to be Vertigo characters, but then Vertigo got bought by DC and then slowly got incorporated into kind of modern DC stuff. And so, yeah, now if you see those characters, they are just DC comics. They used to be kind of in a separate universe. It's a whole thing. But yeah, John Constantine is one of my favorite characters. He is snarky and crass and angry and. I don't know. It's just great. He's he's a magician. He is one of the interesting kind of most important magical figures in the now DC universe, but also, you know, really doesn't want to be there. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah, basically, you know, I, I like to think of him as a as sort of like a magician detective, but I don't know. He's kind of hard to capture in just a few moments. So... Rest assured, we will eventually talk about John Constantine at much more length. Swamp Thing is a giant swamp thing. Uh, it's exactly what it sounds like. A big, massive thing that's made up of swamp uh, life. You know, he 
protects the green. Um, he often has very horrific stories uh, that are told, you know, kind of with him as the focus, particularly uh, Scott Snyder's recent run. I think it was through the or part of the New 52 uh, of Swamp Thing was very good and had some good horror elements. Plus, there's also like the classic Swamp Thing comics. The uh, Alan Moore run was also extremely good. And of course, they did a recent like TV show that I think only lasted one season, but I heard was good. Haven't watched it yet. Um, and there was a bunch of movies in like the 80s. But Swamp Thing, real, real uh, upsetting stories about a man who becomes a giant swamp monster. Uh, we've also briefly mentioned the new Moon Knight series that's coming out for Disney Plus. Definitely excited about that. Um, and to understand kind of the mental health there too, how they're going to portray that in a healthy yeah, manner. Yeah, and I, I'm curious to see yeah, all the ways that they make him not Batman, because especially when he first emerged, <laughs> he was just just the Marvel Batman. Yeah, I mean that's a very good point. It will be interesting because he he necessarily doesn't have powers. So it'll be intriguing to see how they tackle that, so to speak. Because even in the Spider-Man cartoon, Moon Knight is kind of a silly character who doesn't know if he's a superhero or not. So Scarlet Witch, I mean, I, we could do an entire episode about Scarlet Witch and the wonders that is WandaVision. Uh, some of the best TV I think I've seen in the last five years. Uh, WandaVision is brilliant. And it, it tackles mental health, but from the side of trauma grief. and the grief, trauma, and the terrible things that it can make us do. And I think there's a lot of horror themes in that show that go overrated and underrated because it's portrayed in this kind of serialistic, you know, decade type of a show, so to speak. Yeah. But the fact that Wanda, like, seals Agatha Harkness in her own little pocket dimension so that she can just mourn her sins for the rest of eternity is just poetically horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> and and also a lot of the comics do yeah have a lot of dealings with Mephisto and a lot of the other demonic things. Uh, there's some really fun Scarlet Witch comics out there. And then of course we have Sandman who is brilliant and you got me hooked to the Sandman stuff. I haven't consumed a ton of material yet, but I love it. It's Neil Gaiman, and he is a god. Yeah, Neil Gaiman's the best, and uh, Sandman is wonderful. It has a lot of horrific elements, especially if you're getting into like uh, some of the scarier monsters from, from the Dreaming, uh, especially you know a certain serial killer with uh, eyes in his hands. and Or, sorry, not eyes in his hands. I'm mixing it up with, uh, with Pan's Labyrinth now. No, he has uh, mouths in his eyes. Very scary. He kills people and then cuts out their eyes and then eats them with his uh, eye mouths. Also, yeah, some other Marvel stuff. Uh, Vision has a two-volume uh, series where it's about him trying to create like a normal life, and so he like makes uh, a wife and two children, and then things start to get more and more sinister. And like, so the first story is like, first arc is like, oh hey, it's this like weird balance of like things going wrong. Second one is a straight up horror story. Highly recommend. And then yeah, there's lots of horror in X Men. You know, talking about say the New Mutants and a lot of their story arcs. Um, you know, magic, dealing with a lot of hell dimension stuff. Uh, I don't know. There's there's a lot of 
hell and demons and stuff in a lot of X-Men stories. Plus, also, even, like, a lot of alien uh, stuff. There's a, a story that's basically just, like, a straight-up pastiche of, of alien. Good word to use pastiche. Method. I've used it twice this episode. <laughs> oh. All right, let's wrap up this really fun episode and just talk about how we're staying spooky. For me, I received a TikTok from Mark uh, about some horror books, and one of them that really stood out to me is a book called Seed. It's kind of this portrayal of generational trauma through the lens of demonic possession mm -hmm. and demonic haunting, and I'm not super far into it yet. I, I probably have reached the third, the first third, uh, but it pulls punches it doesn't take its time in its buildup of the horror uh it's great i'm really enjoying the read so far yeah that that's uh anya allborn right uh i believe so yes i she is one of my favorite uh indie horror writers love her stuff seed was a good one but also have to do a little shout out for my favorite of her stories uh i call upon thee i had to pause while i read it though while i was reading it because I haven't finished the second story of a lush and seething hell. Mm. And I want to finish that first because I know you're obsessed with yes. it. And I absolutely was stunned by the first, first short story. Excuse me. I had a friend of mine who was reading it alongside me and we stayed up one night until like 2 a.m. just reading it because we could not put that story down. And I think when we started the second story, it, you know, it, it kind of is a slow ball moving. Mm -hmm. So the second story wasn't as like intense and captivating. And so we lost that energy. But I read the moment where they meet the like girl in the middle of the forest yes. yesterday and she starts to scream when they record her. And that was like, oh shit, I got to finish this now. So oh, it's going to be next. It, it gets so crazy. Next episode, I think we should definitely talk about A Lush and Seething Hell, because that first short story, terrifying. I had to stop watching horror stuff for a few days because it got to me so bad. Ah, oh, so good. So good. Anyway, how are you staying spooky? Let me tell you about the Mystery Flesh Pit <laughs> National Park. Oh boy, I'm excited about this one. I saw your title and I was just like, what the hell? So, the Mystery <laughs> Flesh Pit National Park is... A really good example of, I guess, using kind of crowdsourcing to do storytelling. It is a website, and the website is basically designed as though it was like the visitor center for this, you know, fictional, but they, they make it look very convincing, um, national park. Where basically the idea is, uh, while drilling for, I think, oil in Texas they discover that there is actually a huge monster living underneath the ground. Like, you know, we're talking, they don't know how big it is. They don't know if they're just dealing with, I don't know, a foot of it or, you know, like the whole monster or whatever. But they accidentally drill into it and it doesn't seem to care that much. It doesn't notice because we're so tiny and insignificant. Uh, and so basically they made a network of of mines where they started to i don't know take things like nerve endings and actually like make new technology from it and all of that so it's like this very kind of realistic way to approach kind of like lovecraftian horror but you know presumably like there there have been some some incidents where it moved and it caused a lot of destruction and people died and they've eventually closed the national park but what the website is is 
it kind of tells the story by showing like you know photos of you know people who visited and you know them standing next to like all of this like I don't know, just the inside of one of these tunnels, which just looks like flesh and blood and all sorts of weird stuff. Um, or just like, you know, magazine ads for coming and visiting the Mystery Flesh Pit National Park or like artifacts from the uh, visitor center or things like that. And so it's just really clever storytelling. Like it's it's a very Lovecraftian idea of basically this, you know, enormous creature underneath the ground. But kind of through the lens of hey 1970s nostalgia being very convincingly kind of replicated with the you know this kind of absurd idea it's really fun highly check i recommend checking it out i i love storytelling that that does this kind of thing where you know you get this kind of deep dive that's very realistic it's very committed to the bit and they just make a world out of it and, and make it seem like it's real. Interesting. I might have to check that out. Yes, highly recommend it. There's also like other things that have had uh, other horror ideas. There's one called like Local 8 News, uh, which is like a series of videos that's definitely about some sort of like creature or maybe the moon is evil or something like that that is trying to get people to commit suicide and... But it's done as always, like, local news broadcasts. Like, I love that kind of storytelling. So, by the way, if anyone wants to send more of that type of content my way uh, on Twitter, hit me up. I'm all about it. I also have to make kind of a shout-out to the movie The Deep House. Uh, it's something that I found when it first was released on Netflix, and I think the horror community is finally starting to get its claws into it. The plot and the story is really not great. But it's one of the first films that does the entire film underwater. It's these two scuba divers that kind of go through this haunted house at the bottom of the lake. And the cinematography was just mind-boggling to me. Nathaniel, I really think we should do an episode on this because it's just so groundbreaking in horror. Uh, if anyone is looking for a horror movie to watch over the next few days, check it out. It's on Netflix. Really easy to get access to. Okay, I'll definitely check it out. I know I've read a novella that had a similar story idea, but I don't think it's specifically based off of that. So, yeah, I'll uh, I'll give it a whirl. All right. Well, thanks again for spending so much time with us. We know this was a longer episode that we normally do, but we were just kind of in love with the content. Superheroes, DC, Marvel, it's very passionate for us both. So I regret nothing. <gasps> Thank you, and stay spooky. Stay spooky. Need even more Scream Kings? Here's our obligatory shameless social media plug. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Scream Kings Pod. You could also email us at ScreamKingsPodcast at gmail.com. Help us reach a wider audience of horror fans by leaving a review on iTunes or by sharing a link on social media. You could also support the show by going to Patreon.com forward slash Scream Kings. Stay spooky.